You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our first guest today is the Walter McNerney Distinguished Professor of Health Industry Management at Northwestern University's Kellogg Graduate School of Management, where he is also Professor of Strategy and Faculty Director of the Kellogg PhD program. Our second guest is the James Chujin Kim Professor at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, where he is also Professor of Healthcare Management, Professor of Management, and Co-Director of the Roy and Diana Vigelos Program in Life Sciences and Management. Their latest book is titled Big Med, Mega Providers and the High Cost of Healthcare in America. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. David Dranoff and Lawton Burns. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, firstly, I'd like to start off by asking you both to introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about how this book came about. This is David Dranoff. And like Rob, I've been studying the changing healthcare scene in the United States for a long time. And this book grew out of increasing frustration that both of us have had in seeing the un, seeing unstoppable growth of large healthcare systems, the research showing that they have driven up healthcare spending, and the fact that the American public seems to be blaming just about everybody else for the high cost of American healthcare when they ought to be looking at the mega providers. Uh, this is Robert Burns. Um, like David, I've been studying the healthcare system for a long time, actually since the late 1970s. I remember I started teaching in 1981, and I was teaching on hospital systems back then. It was a huge topic of interest and inquiry. So that's, you know, David and I have been looking at this topic for roughly four decades. Uh, the story hasn't gotten any better over those 40 years, and perhaps it's actually deteriorated in terms of, you know, the outcomes we hope to to have observed but have not. Uh, and I totally agree with David that uh, the hospitals have skated past a lot of the criticism for rising healthcare costs, and other people have taken the rap. Okay, um, so the book is titled Big Med Mega Providers and the High Cost of Healthcare in America. So, can you tell us a bit about these mega providers, how they conquered the healthcare market, especially in major cities, and what effect they have on healthcare prices? Rob, you've been looking at them even longer than I have, so why don't you get started? Well, you know, it, it started in the late 1960s when uh, after the federal government passed the uh, Medicare and Medicaid legislation that hospitals had a, an incentive to build systems, especially using for-profit hospitals. And so a number of for-profit hospital chains entered the market in the late 1960s. So the people who are still around today are HCA. Then the early 70s, uh, you had a few more. But in the 1970s, the nonprofit hospital systems felt like, you know, we better start forming to compete with the for-profit hospital systems. Uh, and so they started getting bigger. And that trend has just continued through three or four waves of consolidation at various periods of time often linked to proposed or actual changes in federal legislation. So uh, the Clinton health plan in 1993 had a big impact. Obamacare in 2010 had a big impact. So these these federal uh, legislative changes spur a lot of hospital consolidation. The hospitals also were concerned about the increased purchasing power of health insurers beginning 
In the 1990s, when health insurers started to assemble the networks that I think most Americans are used to dealing with now, and the hospitals were trying to find a way to find not just countervailing power, but perhaps uh, power to dominate over health insurers in certain markets. And this has led to a system where in many markets you have powerful entities facing off against each other with consumers ending up the losers. Okay. Um, and can you sort of walk us through the mechanism through how this, this level of consolidation leads to higher prices? Sure. The way that insurers try to reduce healthcare spending is by getting better prices for their enrollees. And the way they get better prices is by going to the providers and negotiating. And the negotiating leverage they have is that if the providers don't give them better prices, they're going to steer their enrollees to other providers. That works as long as those other providers aren't in the same system. You can't tell two neighboring hospitals after they've merged that if you don't negotiate with us, we'll send our enrollees to the other hospital next door because now they're merged and they have all the power. And we've seen hospitals merge all over the country, leaving insurers with no choice but to negotiate with what, what are now called must-have systems. In other words, if they don't give those hospitals the prices they're asking for, individuals aren't going to enroll in their insurance products. And this has given the bargaining leverage to the hospitals. As well said, I have nothing to add to that. Okay, perfect. Um, so even though mega providers are quite consolidated in their respective markets, um, we should still expect, like with all other goods and services, that the competition would maintain prices at an equilibrium level and prevent mega providers from overcharging. So some attribute the, the fact that this hasn't happened to the disconnect between the patient who actually receives the healthcare and the insurance provider who pays for it, allowing hospitals to raise prices as patients don't feel the burden. Um, what baffles me is that even in, in, in that scenario, the prices should would be reflected in insurance premiums, and there doesn't seem to be anything preventing new firms from entering the market and undercutting the mega providers if they're charging. So if two hospitals merge and they're way overcharging for their services, um, I, I don't see what's what's preventing a, a you know, a, a third hospital from opening up and, and saying, well, you know, we're going to charge a slightly lower rate and then a slightly lower rate and a slightly lower rate, you know, just like with all competitive goods and services. So what role does the, the disconnect between the insurance providers that pay and the patients that receive the care play? And why haven't we seen market forces act the way they normally do in keeping prices um, at an equilibrium level? Well, let me take the first cut at that because you've asked several things there. Um, first off, because the hospitals have consolidated, you have less competition in local markets. And as a result, you don't have market forces working the way they used to because the insurance companies have very few alternative hospitals or hospital systems to turn to. And so we don't have market forces working. In fact, the research shows people that, you know, people like Dave and his colleagues have found that, you know, when you have more hospital competition, you have lower prices and higher quality. We have just the opposite. And so we're now trying to deal with a situation that's been going on for decades where hospitals have consolidated and consolidated, and we have less competition among hospitals in a local market and less alternatives for the payers to look at. The alternative way to preserve competition or restore competition in markets is, as you said, through entry. And entry for hospitals is just really, really difficult. For starters, there are a lot of states where it's practically impossible because you have to get permission from state regulators, and the state regulators are often captured by the existing hospitals. 
even those states where you don't need permission from a state regulator, you have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to build your institution. And even if you build it, they might not come because patients don't admit themselves into hospitals and need doctors to do that. So the hospitals not only have to build the physical infrastructure, they have to attract a lot of doctors to a new facility. And that's a very risky proposition for those doctors. There's a reason why in most markets, the hospitals that dominate today are the same hospitals that dominated 50 years ago, 100 years ago, or even longer. It's just very difficult to establish a new successful hospital. All right. And the one thing I would add is that, and we've seen this play out, when new entrants come into a market, whether they're financed by uh, for-profit companies or private equity or something like that, and this stuff happens, the, the incumbents, these large, typically non-profit hospital systems, play very aggressive defense, and they defend their turf uh, ferociously, and it's really hard for a new entrant to, to gain any traction. Um, okay, what about um, antitrust legislation? Then isn't isn't there some aren't there some sort of laws on the books that that prevent um, monopolies or you know firms from trying to, to dominate their competition? Absolutely, and Rob and I have worked vigorously to try to both encourage the antitrust agencies to go after hospital mergers and also develop methods for them to succeed in the courtroom. Unfortunately, through the the 1990s, the methods that the courts embraced um, were rather perverse in believing that hospital competition was actually bad for consumers. And it wasn't until the 2000s that that started to change. But by the end of the 1990s, most of the big mega providers that we see today were already in place. And as we document in our book, pretty much the size that they are today, at least in local markets. What we're now observing is these mega providers branching out across markets um, over different geographic areas. And while there's research evidence suggesting that that too leads to higher prices, once again, the antitrust laws have not kept up with the facts on the ground and the agencies are again somewhat powerless to prevent this growth. Yeah, I, I'd also add that, you know, the the agencies here, we're talking about the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission, state attorneys general, they have a lot on their plate. You know, it's not just healthcare care they have to look at. They have to look at a lot of other industries. But even in healthcare, there's so many of these mergers taking place, they can't go after them all. And just just this year. Um, the Federal Trade Commission successfully backed down two potential mergers. One was out in Utah. One was um, up in New Jersey. Uh, and the state attorney general uh, uh, blocked another merger in uh, Rhode Island. But, you know, this is this stuff's like chump change compared to some of the other mergers taking place. I mean, we're talking about huge mega mergers, mega combinations being announced. And I'm not sure the, the agencies know what to do with these behemoths who are gathering together to become super behemoths. Or just to take another problematic situation, we see hospital systems um, buying up physician practices left, right, and center, but they're buying the physician practices one at a time or two at a time, and these are just too small to be captured on the antitrust radar screen. And so they get a pass from the agencies. Yet two or three years later, you find out that the hospitals now are employing a third of all the doctors in, in the market, and you've got a problem that um, can no longer be addressed by antitrust. 
Yeah, because because the research shows, just like with the hospital mergers, these vertical mergers of hospitals with physicians also raise prices and may hurt quality. I mean, the, it, it one one could argue, based on the evidence, that the public's getting screwed by all this. Um, okay, but what about then action at the the state level? I mean, it, I, I think you mentioned in the book a couple of providers um, that that dominate, um, like. For example, Northwestern um, that dominates in, I think it was the Chicago um, region. And so, I mean, if these if these um, behemoths aren't, you know, operating all over the country, they're concentrated in one region. Um, is there anything state regulators can do um, or state legislation can do to, to address that, even if federal regulation is slow to catch up? So full disclosure, I'm employed by Northwestern University. Northwestern Medicine is, is, is an independent entity. Um, and in the book, we talk about the fact that they're very successful and very large. I wouldn't use the word dominate um, for Northwestern medicine because they're actually Chicago areas is, is quite large with several large systems that have different strengths in different geographic areas. Beyond that, um, many states do have very active antitrust um, lawyers working in the healthcare area. So the state of California had a successful action against the the Sutter system recently in which they were able to secure a consent decree in which Sutter agreed to change some of its uh, tactics, some of its contractual requirements that were thought to be anti-competitive. At the other end of the spectrum, there are states that have uh, what are called certificate of public action laws that basically allow the hospitals to do whatever they want. And not only are the states not going to prosecute them for antitrust, it gives those hospitals exemption from federal antitrust enforcement. So uh, you can have, look at some states and believe that they're going to step into the fray. There are a lot of states that want to have no business here. And in fact, there are many states, as I said, that seem to have been captured by the hospitals they're supposed to be regulating. And that that issue of regulatory capture, which is the phrase we use, has been going on since the 70s. Okay, um, so as you mentioned in the book, most Americans tend to attribute the high cost of healthcare to insurance companies and drug makers, but significantly underestimate the role that hospitals hospitals or doctors play. So what do you think is the reason for this common misperception? And, and in your opinion, what share of the responsibility for high prices would you say um, is borne by the hospitals and doctors as opposed to drug makers and insurance companies? So I was at a recent conference where the wonderful health economist David Cutler from Harvard University was speaking to this issue. And he mentioned a survey, an informal survey he'd recently done, which he asked the audience what percentage of health insurance premiums do you believe are paid out to medical providers? And perhaps the, the listeners could, could think what they believe that percentage is. The actual percentage paid out to providers is 85%. The audience believe the actual percentage is more in the order of 50%. In other words, if you're paying a $10,000 health insurance premium, they thought the health insurance company was keeping $5,000. But in reality, a health insurance company gets $1,500, of which a few hundred dollars is profit, and the rest of it is the cost of administering the, the healthcare system from the health insurance company. 85% of the health insurance dollars going to providers. If you want to know why health insurance premiums are high, well, why did Willie Sutton rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Yeah. You know, that just following up on what Dave said, 
a number of people in the industry like to, like to have what we there's this old phrase that comes out of English literature called a whipping boy. You know, it's a stand in for the king's son who gets whipped instead of the king's son being whipped. And so the healthcare industry has its version of whipping boys. You know, people have to stand in and take the abuse and punishment for what's wrong. And the insurance companies are have always been one of those. I mean, that's that was the culprit, according to Barack Obama, when he ran for president in 2008. Um, more recently, it's been the pharmacy benefit managers, the Federal Trade Commission's launching an investigation of them. But, you know, you could go along the, the healthcare value chain and pick out the various parties who may or may not have some role to play. But for some reason, people skip the two biggest spenders of healthcare, and that's the hospitals and the doctors. So pharma is about 15% of the health economy. And yeah, it's absolutely true that there are many drugs in the United States whose prices are multiples of the prices paid in other countries. But there's also a greater use of generics in the United States at lower cost than in any other country. And many of these high-priced drugs are low-cost substitutes for surgery and other treatments. So you could find fault with the pharma industry, but if you think the pharma industry is why the U.S. spends twice as much on healthcare as any other country, once again, you're, you're looking and barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, totally agree. Okay, um, so I also wanted to ask about the policy side to this issue. So many in the Democratic Party recently have called for a single payer Medicare for all system that would allegedly reduce healthcare spending and rein in costs. However, it remains a hotly contested topic. So do you think that Medicare for all would fix the, the high cost problem? And if not, then how come countries like Canada and Australia that do have single payer systems um, don't have the same issue with regards to cost? Well, you've given us about 10 minutes to deal with a question that's been debated for a century. It's literally a century since uh, national health insurance was floated as a U.S. healthcare policy proposal. And it's been put forth with serious discussion in front of Congress at least seven or eight times in the past century. I will try to give you the key arguments in a nutshell, but, but let's stipulate, uh, again, the U.S. does spend roughly twice as much per capita as any other developed country on healthcare. So there's clearly lots of room for bringing that down. The question is, how do you do that um, without breaking too many eggs? Rob, do you want to jump in? Well, you know, much of that, as our colleague at uh, Johns Hopkins, Jerry Anderson, has shown over time, it's that we pay higher prices for this stuff because we don't regulate pricing in the healthcare industry that much. So we now that problem that we have with higher prices, it comes with a benefit, and that's faster access to care. So the United States, compared to everybody else, has made this you know, trade-off decision. We want faster access to healthcare, and we want faster access to the latest treatments, and we're, we're willing to pay for it. Now, no body actually deliberated that, but we're all kind of voting with our feet in terms of the health insurance plans we choose. So we're paying for what we want. So in the United States, you know, the emphasis is on individual liberty. Other countries don't have that emphasis. We do pay for it through our health insurance if we're employed. That health insurance has, has huge tax benefits. Um, it's been argued that the uh, tax subsidy for employer-sponsored health insurance amounts to about a $300 billion giveaway to employees. 
Uh, and perhaps if we weren't getting that, we would demand cheaper health insurance plans. I'm not sure how much that would solve the problem. Um, I think a lot of the problems Rob pointed out is that we want whatever technology makes available to us, and we want it now. And I don't think too many of us are willing to sign up for the plan that says um, we'll agree to have 10-year-old technology and 10-year-old health spending because that's often what's available to you in other countries. Now, you can get state-of-the-art stuff in other countries, but the flow of state-of-the-art stuff is going to become a trickle if the United States starts slashing its health spending. And even when other countries give you access to state-of-the-art um, technology, it's, it's highly rationed. Yeah, so, and, and know, with long, long waiting lines, too. And, and so you know, we are a country in which individual choice matters, we're not socialist in, in very many ways at all. And I think it's going to be very difficult to the American, for the American people to swallow a single-payer solution. A single-payer solution, if the government says, this is how much money we want to spend on health care next year, and they write the checks, and nobody else can write checks, and they can bring down spending in a heartbeat. But providers will be making less money. Innovators will be making less money. And what happens when suppliers have less money? They start supplying less stuff. Yeah. I, let me add two other observations that supplement what David's just said. First off, we have a colleague at uh, Columbia University, Sherry Glead, who published this long review on single-payer systems around 2010. She found that there's very little difference in the cost of care as you go from single-payer systems to other kinds of healthcare systems, including our own. And cross-national data, if you look at it over time, healthcare costs increase across all countries at, you know, at varying rates, but we're not increasing faster than anybody else. You know, we're sort of in the middle of the pack. And so nobody has figured out, nobody in any country has figured out a way to control rising healthcare costs. Yes, the cost will keep going up, but we, we can reduce the baseline if we simply say, say to providers, yeah, doctors in the United States, basically they make more than, than similarly trained doctors anywhere else in the world. Our hospitals my, my, I was just uh, preparing for a lecture today on, on issues like this. I was getting photographs of hospitals in the United States and comparable hospitals in other parts of the world. Our hospitals, they're like the Taj Mahal compared to hospitals in other parts of the world. We don't have to have all of that. We can save money, but it will come at the expense of, do we really want our, our best college students or best, brightest minds deciding they don't want to go into medicine because it's a difficult profession and they're not making nearly as much money as they can make in consulting or in banking or in law or whatever. Do we really want to tell our medical innovators, you make these risky investments, you're not going to get a payoff. You're going to have to get the same price, same prices that you get in Europe, which isn't enough to justify the investment. Um, that's a trade-off that we have to confront. I could see people saying, we're so damned expensive. I'll take whatever sacrifices I have to make. But uh, apparently, overall, the American public hasn't been willing to go in that direction. That's right. I, I, when, you know, I think the, the key word in all of this is trade-offs. Every country has to make trade-offs and figure out what, it, what, you know, what do they want to emphasize, access to care, quality of care, minimizing the costs of care. And countries do different balancing acts among those three goals. Hey, I remember when the Clinton health care proposal was floated. And a lot of power was going to be given to state regulators to decide what healthcare in your state was going to look like. And I was thinking that, you know, in, in principle, the idea of some 
all-knowing, all-powerful government entity acting on behalf of the public, they would be great to run my healthcare system. And I said, but that's not this proposal. This proposal is politicians in Illinois running the healthcare system. And that's a very different kettle of fish, isn't it? There's no escaping the fact that this system would have to be run by the political class. And is that really where we want to go? You know, most of us in academia don't think so, but we have we have some colleagues who disagree. Yeah. Okay, um, that that's really interesting. Um, you you touched on an issue there um, briefly, talking about the how, how doctors in the United States earn significantly more um, than si- similarly trained doctors um, elsewhere, even in the developed world. Um, that's that's interesting to me because I would think that you know the sort of labor market economics should work there as well in saying that, well, the United States has a shortage of physicians, so they would be paid quite a bit more. And then, you know, the high salaries would, would attract more people to the profession. And then over time, um, you know, the, the amount of doctors would, you know, supply and demand would meet and we would have, um, you know, the, the right equilibrium salaries for doctors. And that should be relatively, you know, similar to most, most other places. So, um, is there a reason that's not happening or that our equilibrium is so much higher than other, other places elsewhere in the world? So when you hear that members of a profession earn more than members of some other profession, what, what explanation do you give? The explanation is, well, maybe entry into the profession is regulated by the profession itself. And that's the case. Um, the, you, it, the number of medical school slots is controlled by, by doctors number of residency training programs is controlled by the specialty societies. It's just difficult to, uh, and foreign trained medical graduates aren't, it's not easy for them to come into the United States. So the supply of physicians is is very tightly controlled. Right. One other issue is that uh, American physicians pay for their own medical education. Physicians in other countries have their medical education paid for them. And so there's a trade-off there. Okay, um, so it seems to me like we may have touched on a number of potential policy approaches here, um, making it easier for foreign trained physicians um, to come practice in the United States, um, potentially some some sort of um, regulation um, or you know incentive structure that that creates more slots um, for medical schools or residency programs, um, those, those sorts of things. Um, is, is there anything, sure. you know, any, any sort of legislation you see that would be, you know, that effective or perhaps the most effective yeah, at increasing yeah. the number of physicians? I'm sorry, scope of practice regulation. I'm just a, what that means is regulations that limit what people who don't have MD degrees are able to do in terms of um, delivering medical care. So just as, as one of many examples, Registered nurse anesthetists pretty much do whatever anesthesiologists can do. There are very few areas of anesthesiology where a registered nurse anesthetist cannot deliver the same care. Yet by regulation that's pretty consistent from state to state, registered nurse anesthetists cannot deliver anesthesia care unless they're under the supervision of an anesthesiologist. And this obviously dries up the cost of anesthesia care. Um, If you go into your doctor's office and well, not if you go into a, a, a retail clinic, say at your local drugstore, and you need a simple prescription, um, you're going to need to have a doctor or a nurse practitioner operating under doctor supervision to write that prescription. All of these help maintain the physician control of the healthcare system and keep costs high. 
Okay. Um, so finally, I wanted to finish off by asking if there was anything that you guys learned or any trends that you observed in researching or writing this book that were especially surprising that you didn't expect. Well, you know, it, it wasn't surprising. It just reinforced it is that uh, I use the the, um, the phrase history repeating. A lot of stuff that takes place in U.S. healthcare is just history repeating. And we keep doing the same things over and over again. And I don't think many people in our health in our country, let alone who study our healthcare system, recognize that a lot of these things we're doing today, we've tried versions of them before. I don't, I don't think we've learned from our prior efforts and mistakes. Uh, and then we keep repeating them. So one of the things that I learned from this is how important it is for systems to try to transform how healthcare is delivered. Systems are going to get higher prices. They're not going to take their market power and not use it. I don't, you can't expect anybody to not try to get the best price the market will give them. But systems, because they have contracts with physicians, they have the ability to have unified electronic health records. They have the ability to not just work with contracts, but work as any organization can work through informal relationships amongst the doctors, between management and the doctors. They have all kinds of opportunities to change the way healthcare is delivered. And we're just not yet seeing that. It's not showing up in the data, although we're starting to see more and more systems integrating health records amongst providers. So now it's possible if you go to a doctor in a freestanding clinic and they're affiliated with a hospital, when you go to that hospital from another service, everything that happened in the doctor's office now sits in that hospital's electronic health record. That could eliminate duplicative testing. That could um, speed up diagnosis and so forth. So I still have to hold out some hope that systems are going to figure this out. But boy, as, as Rob said, they've had decades to do so. And as our good friend um, Marty Gaynor once said, uh, everybody talked about how systems have the ability to transform the delivery of medical care. How come there isn't any data to show that they're doing it? Yeah. So fingers crossed because we've made a big bet on healthcare systems, whether we like it or not. Right. And, and I think the thing that complicates all that is that over time we keep adding more and more people and professions to what I call the healthcare ecosystem. We don't have a system that works systemically. We have an ecosystem of all these different players. And you know, we can do all the system building or system engineering we want, but with more and more people overrunning this system, it's basically impossible to coordinate and collaborate all those efforts. Okay. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you guys so much for joining us on the show. It's been a pleasure speaking with you both. Thank you. It's been our pleasure joining you. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Dr. Stranov and Burns' latest book is titled Big Med, Mega Providers, and the High Cost of Healthcare in America. It's available now on Amazon, New Chicago Press. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.